Well, good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt Bowman, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church, and it's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. We're finishing the book of Acts this morning, so we've been in it for almost a year at this point, and so uh, we're going to see the conclusion of this book before we get on to our summer series. It's been a great uh, year that we've been here in Acts, reading about how the Holy Spirit has grown the early church. And there's a lot of, I think, just studying the book of Acts, applicable things that we can learn in these days from the book, especially in these more recent days. We've had COVID lockdowns, we've had social unrest, and I'm sure that we've all felt like the church could learn a few things from the book of Acts. When we last left Paul, he was shaking off a poisonous snake when he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And now he's making his way to Rome to finally be put on trial before Caesar. And as we'll see, he finally makes it to Rome in chapter 28. So let's take a look at chapter 28, starting in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pudioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Kimberly and I really need to stop traveling at Christmas time because something always seems to go wrong. So back in college, Kimberly flew back to home to Alaska, where she's from, and she couldn't land on the runway, and so she wound up in a place called White Horse Canada. I still couldn't find it on a map today. A few years ago, we were traveling back for Chris from Christmas from my parents' house when the check engine light came on, which no one likes to see. And because I'm such a great diagnoser of such things, when we pulled over, I wound up blowing the circuit on the transmission. So that was awesome. To all the guys out there, never stick a paper clip in the little diagnostic <laughs> terminal. It won't go well. And as the guys putting the car on the tow truck, we saw two guys break out and start fighting and punching each other in the parking lot. So that's a great thing to watch while I'm putting my son in his car seat in the tow truck. And then last Christmas Eve, as if this wasn't great enough, not the check engine light this time, but the low tire pressure light came on. We were on the five right around Bell Gardens, if you know where that is. It's a very interesting area. And so we pulled over to a tire repair shop, which was right between a pawn shop and a dispensary. Both were open on Christmas Eve. So thankfully that one was a quick fix. If you've ever experienced something like that, if you've ever experienced difficulty while traveling, it makes your arrival all the more sweeter, doesn't it? Well, think about Paul up to this point. He's been trying to get to Rome. He spent two years in a prison. He was marooned on an island for three months, and finally in Acts 28, he makes it to Rome. Three years earlier, Paul wrote to the Roman church in his letter, and he said, For God is my witness, 
whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at need in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as from among the rest of the Gentiles. For a long time, Paul wanted to get to Rome, and he finally made it. But notice what he said to the Romans in his letter, that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Somehow. Imagine you told Paul, here's how. Here's how you're going to get to Rome. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be left in a Caesarean prison for two years. You're going to have a mob plot to kill you. You're going to be shipwrecked again. You're going to be bitten by a snake and spend three months marooned on an island. The entire time, you're chained to a Roman centurion. That's what it's going to take, Paul, to get you to Rome. What do you think Paul would have said? What would you have said? We all have plans, don't we? We all have ideas about the way things in our life are going to turn out. There's an old Yiddish proverb that I like. We plan, God laughs. Things don't usually go the way that we plan. We like the direct route. God seems to like the scenic route. Like the very out of the way scenic route. Are you okay with God changing your plans? Are you okay with God changing the itinerary? Paul certainly had his desires. He desired to go to Rome. And in Acts 16, earlier in the book, we saw that he desired to preach in Asia, but God prevented it. Apparently, Paul was okay with God changing the plans. And more than that, Paul was okay with God accomplishing his purposes any way he wanted. As in earlier passages in Acts, we see here that the plural pronoun we is used, telling us that Luke is an eyewitness to the events he records. In this passage, we see that after spending the winter on Malta, Paul finally boards a ship that will deliver him to Rome. Thankfully, this part of the journey was fairly uneventful. This ship was a Roman ship, it said, from the Egyptian city of Alexandria, with the twin Roman gods Pollux and Castor as the figurehead. After a quick stop over in Syracuse and Regium, they come to Puteoli, which is near the modern city of Naples. It's here that Paul meets a group of Christians. Now, Paul has written to this part of the world in his Roman letter, but he's never in person evangelize this part of the world. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, what we see is that the gospel beat Paul to Italy. Not because of any great missionary, probably, or any great mission that was undertaken there, probably by ordinary Christians doing their ordinary business like me and you just traveling throughout the empire sharing the gospel. As great a missionary Paul is, the Holy Spirit is better. 
And we see in the last part of Acts that Christians extend tremendous hospitality to Paul. These Christians welcomed him for seven days. And even though Paul had never evangelized this part of the world, and even though these Christians had never met him, they extended him tremendous hospitality. And this is encouraging to Paul. The fact that there are already Christians in this part of the world. Because he trusts that the Spirit will continue to do this kind of work when he gets to Rome. And we'll see later in our passage how the Roman Christians extended him similar hospitality. Let's pick it up in verse 15. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul lands at a port here that's about 120 miles from Rome, and he has to walk the rest of the way. Now, that's a long journey to walk. More than that, the Roman church hears that Paul is coming. And they meet him at a town that's about 30 miles from Rome, which is probably a two or three days journey. Now, we lose this in modern life, don't we? 30 miles is not a big deal to us. In my minivan, I can do that in 30 minutes. Some of you drive Teslas, 20 minutes. But this was a three days walk. Imagine walking from here to the Queen Mary in Long Beach. That's about 30 miles. Today, we think of distance in driving terms. What distance could you drive in three days? I once drove from Yosemite to Moab, Utah in a day. That's probably the most driving I've ever done in a day. What's three days? Chicago? Would you drive to meet someone in Chicago and then drive back? That's what these Christians did. They had jobs. They had families. They had to take their provisions with them. These little details saying that they went out to meet him 30 miles away, this is no small thing. They wanted to go out and meet Paul and receive him back into the city. This is radical hospitality from these people who only knew Paul by the letter. And this caused Paul to thank God and to take courage, it says. Your hospitality to other Christians, you have no idea sometimes the difference that it makes. And when Paul came to Rome, it says he was allowed to stay in his own hired dwelling, probably paid for by these Roman Christians. This is a lot better than a prison that Paul is used to. Paul was an uncondemned Roman citizen, so this accommodation was made for him. Here we see a great picture of the local church. This local church that was assisting Paul in his journey and his missionary endeavors. And here at the village, we believe that the local church is the center point for what God is doing in the world. Just like Paul was shown hospitality by the local church, we believe that it's the local church that plants, evangelizes to the lost, 
and support missionaries. And your partnership with the local church results in ministry occurring in all of those areas. Look at verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. See what Paul is saying here? He addresses the Jewish leaders with three points. Number one, Paul claims that he has done nothing against the Jewish nation. Paul sees the message that he's preaching. He sees the message about Jesus in complete harmony with the Jewish laws, customs, and the Old Testament traditions. The gospel of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises and traditions. Number two, Paul says that he was examined and found innocent and that the Roman authorities desired to set him free because the death penalty was not warranted in his case, but the Jewish leaders objected to it. Where have you heard that before? When you're reading your Bible, a good question to always be asking is, where have I heard that before? In Luke's first volume, this is what he writes about the trial of Jesus. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Deja vu, anyone? A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted Jesus and told lies about him, and if they persecuted Paul and told lies about him, they're going to do it to you Christians. And don't we know that that's true today? The lies and the blame and the vitriol directed towards Christians, this is nothing new. It happened to Jesus, it happened to Paul, and it happens to us today. How people lied about you and misrepresented you on account of Christ? Jesus actually tells us, and Paul tells us the same, that we actually share in those sufferings of Christ and of Paul. So what's Paul's response in verse 19? But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And this is number three. Paul is not holding a grudge. 
He doesn't have some countersuit to bring against the people for defamation or pain and suffering or expenses incurred or anything else. Rather, Paul looks at their objection as divine providence that affords him the opportunity to make it to Rome. To preach the gospel in the most important city and before the most powerful person in the world. That's Paul's outlook. How many of us would have loved to get even? We would have loved to get back at those people who wronged us. I mean, they stole two years of Paul's life, letting him sit in a prison. I would have been bitter. Would you? Not Paul. Paul wasn't bitter. He wasn't holding a, a grudge. In fact, here was his response. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to hear his message. He wants them to believe in Jesus. Not to suffer. Look at verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it became since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul wants them to know that he does not hold anything against them, but rather he wants them to know the hope that is found in Jesus. He wants his hope to be their hope. Jesus is the hope of Israel and the completion of Israel's story. And these Jews who know the scriptures better than anybody, Paul wants to reason with them and convince them from their own scriptures to turn to Jesus. And he said to them, verse 21, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. No charges have been filed against you, Paul. We haven't heard anything bad about you, Paul. Well, that's good news. If there's no charges, maybe Paul has a chance of being released. But they want to hear what he thinks his views are and about this sect. They want to hear about Jesus. Don't ask a question you don't want an answer to. Right? Don't ask Paul about Jesus if you don't plan on being there for a while. Paul's going to tell him about Jesus. And he's going to tell him about this sect that it says everywhere is spoken against. Now, isn't that interesting? The Jews say that this sect of Christians everywhere is spoken against. What do you think they're saying? Are they saying that these are insurrectionists rebelling against the Roman authorities? No, that's actually the zealots. Do they say that they are hypocrites? That's actually the Pharisees. Do they say that they're too wrapped up in the politics of the day? No, that's actually the Sadducees. What are they saying? The consistent accusation against Paul and against Christians in that age and in every age is that a Christian's allegiance is not to a sect or to a set of doctrines or to an ideology. 
but a Christian's allegiance first and foremost is to a person, to Jesus Christ. That's it. The worst thing that a person can say about you as a Christian is that you don't buy into all the stuff that's going on that you don't hold tightly to either, you know, whatever the prevailing ideas of the day are or to what one guy says or anything like that. First and foremost, our allegiance is not to a set of doctrine, ideologies, or anything like that. First and foremost, our allegiance is to a person. And everything else flows from that. And this allegiance has ways that work itself out, to be sure, which is why it's hard for a faithful Christian to get along well in the world. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What's the longest amount of time you've ever spent listening to someone? Maybe you stayed up all night talking to a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you listened to a five or six hour podcast once. Here at the village, there might be a riot if I go longer than an hour. Paul preached all day. Morning until evening, it says. And the entire time it says that he was preaching from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, although Paul composed much of what came to be known as the New Testament, all he preached from on this occasion was the Old Testament. This is why we highly value our Bible reading plan that we're in every year. Over 75% of your Bible is in what we call the Old Testament. Don't skip those readings. Because according to Paul, you find Jesus there. Apparently the Old Testament is enough to convince people who knew the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we see their response. And I'm glad how honest scripture is. As someone who teaches for a living, I'm glad that scripture tells us that even Paul didn't convert everybody. Even Paul couldn't teach well enough that everybody bought into what he was saying. I'm glad that Luke is honest when he says, verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Your job isn't to convert everybody. Is that shocking? God doesn't keep score. Well, how many people have you converted or how many people have you baptized or how many times have you shared the gospel this week? God's not like that. God will build his church and he will build it when he wants and with whomever he wants. Your job and my job is simply to be faithful to the call and opportunities that he gives us. Paul didn't convert everybody, but he converted everybody whom God called to himself. And now after the response, Paul throws down the gauntlet. Paul goes full on medieval on him. He quotes Isaiah. Here's what he says. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can barely hear. With their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed. Thus they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Them's fighting words, as they say. Paul's quoting Isaiah 6 here, which was written by the prophet Isaiah against the nation of Israel at a time when they were rebelling against God's, and they were breaking the old covenant. As a result, they were cast into exile. And Paul here is quoting Isaiah because he sees the Jewish leaders of his day as acting like the Jewish leaders of Isaiah's day. Just like they rebelled against God in the Old Testament, they are rebelling against God now at the preaching of Jesus. And yet the Jews are the very people that you would expect to respond favorably to Jesus. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what the prophecies said. And they had a messianic expectation at that time that the Messiah would come to them. And I think this illustrates a point that we've seen over and over again. Often the people you least expect are unreceptive to the gospel and end up rejecting it. Think of that homeschool kid or the pastor's kid or someone raised in youth group or from a good Christian family. We're shocked when they seem to fall away from God because they've heard about Christ all the time. And this shocks us. And yet in the same passage, Paul also illustrates the flip side of this idea. Often the people you least expect to respond favorably to the gospel, respond favorably and end up accepting it. The Gentiles were the least likely people to respond favorably to the gospel. They didn't know the scriptures very well. They didn't have a tradition or a history with God, with the God of Israel. And yet Paul now says that his mission is going to be con to convert the Gentiles because the Jews have rejected their Messiah. Acts tells us over and over again that the Holy Spirit is working in these people, the Gentiles, who were once far off from God. And now God has made them his people and brought them near. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how Acts ends. Now, I hope that you're feeling a little bit of, wait a minute. I hope you feel this. I hope that you're saying, that's how it ends. We've been in Acts for almost a year, and that's how it ends? What about Caesar? What about Paul? 
Does he ever stand trial before Caesar? Does he get executed or does he get let off? Does he ever make it to Spain like he talked about in Acts? What happens to the Roman church? If Acts were a movie, it would never get made with this ending. If it were on Netflix, it would have like a thousand one-star reviews because people wouldn't like it. Does Luke really expect us to be okay with him leaving so many questions unanswered? Yeah, in fact, he does. In fact, he does. And you know why? It's because the Bible was not written to satisfy our curiosity. It was not written to answer all your questions. It was written to show you the glory of God's work of salvation accomplished in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why it was written. But you'd say, but Matt, what happened to Paul? Well, I'm glad you asked. It means that you're interested, right? Is it possible that Acts is actually not about Paul? Is it possible that Acts is actually not about Paul or Peter or John or Stephen or Philip or Cornelius or Herod or Felix or Caesar? Is that possible? Acts is not about them. Acts is about God. And Acts is about God through the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit building his church. So rather than asking these questions that the Bible doesn't answer, let's actually examine why Acts ends here the way that it does. If you think all the way back to Acts 1.8 at the very beginning of the book, we're told that, this is Jesus speaking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Paul is now in Rome and prepared to testify before Caesar. Luke is saying, if the gospel has made it to Rome, it'll make it to the ends of the earth. If it's made it to the most important city in the world at that time, It'll make it everywhere. And Luke sees Paul's making it to Rome as the first completion of Jesus' command in Acts 1.8. Now, based on church history, we know that the gospel spread from Rome to the ends of the earth. And all of us should be very thankful for that. We are the beneficiaries of that result. And we know from church history that Paul was actually acquitted of these charges, even though eventually he was executed by Nero. But in Paul's own letter to the Romans, he actually expressed a desire to go to Spain. The church father, Clement, who would become the bishop of the church in Rome, knew Paul personally and was mentioned in Paul's letters to his letter to the Romans. Clement was probably a part of the church who went out to meet Paul and bring him back to the city and was probably a part of the church that paid for his housing when he was in Rome. Now, it's not in the Bible, so take it for what it's worth. But around the year 95, Clement wrote, 
about Paul, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. In Clement's time, the farthest extent to the West meant Spain. Now, the farthest west that Paul ever got, if you look at a map, was Rome. And Clement lived in Rome, so I'm assuming that Paul made it further west than that. Another clue that Paul was acquitted is where it says that Paul stayed under house arrest for two years. Now, remember those questions, where have I heard that before? Paul was in a Caesarean prison for two years before he appeared before Festus. Why is that? It's because two years was the maximum time that a Roman citizen could be detained before his accusers brought charges against him. Which is why Agrippa tells Festus he would have been released had he not appealed to Caesar. And so I think Paul was in Rome for two years because his accusers never showed up. Which is what we saw in the passage today, that there were no charges yet filed against Paul. And I think Caesar released him. Again, the Muratorian fragment, which is an early Christian writing written around the year 170, says that, moreover, the Acts of the Apostles was written in one book. That's the book we've been studying. For most excellent Theophilus's, Luke compiled the individual events and took place in his presence. And he plainly shows by omitting the martyrdom of Peter as well as the departure of Paul from the city of Rome when he journeyed to Spain. Now, even after all that, whether we get to know the end of Paul's story or not, we need to be content with how Acts ends. Because even after Peter and Paul's death, the church is still very much alive. The church planting network that we're a part of is called Acts 29 because the idea is that we pick up where Acts 28 leaves off. By the same Holy Spirit that empowered Paul's ministry, we are meant to continue the work of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Geographically, Irvine is a lot farther away than Spain. But in another sense, it's much easier to reach with the gospel. We know Christians who are doing ministry in places that geographically are a lot closer to Rome yet are much harder to reach with the gospel. So the ends of the earth is not just a geographic idea. It's places that the gospel has not yet taken hold and been preached. This is why we partner with people in places like Albania or with a family from this very church who does missionary work in a closed country. But I wanted to highlight one other couple who desires to do ministry in our church. Much like Paul, Greg and Angela Jenks have a heart to see the people of Italy come to know Jesus. They're considering moving to Italy this fall to teach the Bible and maybe even start a Bible college. Right now they're raising support and they will be in the hub after the service to tell you more about what they believe God is doing in Italy and how you can be a part of it. Even though Italy is a heavily Roman Catholic country, most people there are fairly culturally Catholic only, and very few know Jesus. So I encourage you, if you want to see the people of Italy come to know Jesus, talk to Greg 
and Angela in the hub after the service. Greg's pretty hard to miss. He's probably the tallest guy in our church. You can also visit their website, reachitaly.org, for more information. So to wrap up, in this series, this Church Alive series in Acts, we've seen how the Holy Spirit has moved to build his church against all odds, against all forms of oppression, against religious persecution, and what we can do to be sure that in our day, the Holy Spirit is still moving and still breathing life into his church in ways and in places that we would least expect. And this brings us to our good news statement this morning. In this entire series, we've seen the Holy Spirit move and build his church. So our good news statement this morning is by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will continue to build his church and the gospel will continue to make disciples of all nations until Jesus returns to claim his church as his own. And it's with that holy expectation that I want to encourage you all to continue to partner with us and the church in general, because God is working and one day he will return to claim his church that is very much alive. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this time that we have spent in your word in this book where we get to see, Lord, um, that you are building your church, that you love your people, um, and that even when we can't see it, and even when we see people that we would um, least expect sometimes come to know the gospel, Lord, um, you work in people's hearts and you convert hearts and minds to bring them into your church. So Lord, I pray that as we um, close this book and this series, that you would continue to work uh, in your church, that you would continue to build your church, Lord, that we, as this church, would be faithful to partner with what your spirit is doing, Lord, that people would hear the gospel and would be saved, and that we would continue to be faithful to walk in the work that you've given us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name.